Profiles in Teaching with Technology is a podcast series created by Music First, a company dedicated to providing world-class cloud-based tools, content, and classroom management platforms to music teachers around the world. Each episode features a K-12 music educator who uses technology to enhance their teaching in innovative ways. We'll discuss the what, why, and how of their technology integration and hopefully share some teaching strategies that you can use in your own classroom. For more information about Music First, please visit www.musicfirst.com. There you'll be able to find out about all of our platforms, as well as sign up for a free 30-day trial. Cara Bernard is Assistant Clinical Professor of Music Education at the University of Connecticut, where she teaches courses in choral and elementary methods and curriculum. As a conductor and teacher, she regularly workshops and leads festival performances for students and teachers. She has conducted, performed, and prepared choruses for performances at some of the most prestigious venues, from Carnegie Hall and the Apollo Theater to the Museum of Modern Art. Kara was the director and conductor of the Count Me In program at Carnegie Hall, where she designed and implemented a vocal and choral curriculum for beginning level middle school musicians. Additionally, she worked with the Young People's Chorus of New York City in their school choral program, working with the New York City Public Schools to bring a choral experience to over 1,000 children throughout the city. Prior to these appointments, Kara enjoyed many years of teaching high school chorus, general music, and piano in the New York City Public Schools. Kara's research areas include music teacher evaluation, policy, curriculum, and social justice. She serves on the editorial committees of the Music Educators Journal, Arts Education Policy Review, Journal of Popular Music Education, and is associate editor of Visions of Research in Music Education. And she's president-elect of Connecticut ACDA. She is co-author of the book Navigating Teacher Evaluation, A Guide for Music Teachers, published by Oxford University Press. It is my absolute delight this week to welcome one of my favorite music teachers on the planet, Dr. Cara Bernard. Cara, I am so happy to welcome you to my little podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be with you. So, my dear friend, um, while I know you, um, our listeners do not. So if you could please start off by like telling us, I, I know you're at University of Connecticut, or as I call it, UConn, as, as many others do now, but I'd love to know like the arc of your career, like when you got interested in, in music, teaching music, and kind of your gigs along the way up, up to where you are now. So let's hear it. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like a a lot of times when you ask people, oh, how did you know you wanted to be a music teacher? You know, sometimes people say in high school, I really wanted to be a music teacher. And um, I really wanted to be the president of the United States. Awesome. Um, <laughs> um, I just, you know, thought I would go to school for political science and go to law school and, you know, be a piano playing politician, you know, like Bill Clinton with the saxophone. Oh, awesome. Um, except I'd be, I'd be way cooler, right? Absolutely. Um, and and then um, after I after I filled out all my applications for political science, my high school music teacher called me into her classroom and she said, "You know, NYU has a, a really nice music ed program, and you really like New York City. You should consider applying." And I said, "Well, I'm that's kind of really gonna get off of my track to be the president. Thank you, but no." 
And then I thought about it and I said, all right, I'll, I'll try that. And, um, and I did. So I ended up going to uh, NYU for my undergrad um, degree. And then I got another degree at Westminster Choir College. Oh, uh, cool. Which is a small choir school in New Jersey. And, um, and then I did my doctorate at Teachers College. Um, but my actual teaching career was all in the New York City public schools. I taught in a very large public high school in Astoria, Queens. And I taught general music and chorus and piano, and um, and I worked on the the musicals after school. So um, I had my hand in all things musical, and um, I loved everything about my uh, teaching time in New York City. I I just loved it. I loved the students. Um, I loved having a lot of autonomy over my program. One of the great things about New York City is there's not a prepackaged like curriculum that you have to use. There's like right. a framework in New York City. They call it the blueprint for music and teaching, music teaching and learning in the arts. Um, and it's, it's just really free and it's flexible. And so I, I got to really just build the program based on the needs of the students. Um, and, and it was wonderful. How many years did you teach in this, in the city schools? I taught uh, in the city schools full-time for three years. Uh, nope, that's a lie. I taught in the city schools for seven years. And then when I went to get my doctorate, um, I left my full-time teaching gig and um, I worked at Carnegie Hall and the Young People's Chorus of New York City for my three years. So I was still teaching kids in schools um, just in, in different ways through um, choral programs through these two organizations. Oh, very cool. So that that's how the Carnegie thing happened, because I knew that you were involved with them. So while you were doing your doctorate, that was kind of your your side gig, how you were helping pay the bills. It's true. And um, I worked in a program at Carnegie Hall called the Count Me In program, and it was a program dedicated to music uh, like programs students that didn't have music programs in middle school um, and allowing them opportunity to come and make music together from um, all over the city. And, you know, one of the interesting things about New York City is they have these specialized high schools. Um, and some of them are dedicated to math and science and engineering, and some of them are dedicated to the arts. And uh, so you have to have an audition. And so this program, the Count Me In program at Carnegie was created to uh, give an equitable experience for students that didn't have music in their middle schools and who wanted to go to a specialized arts high school. So oh, interesting. was preparing them. Yeah, I was preparing them for the audition, you know, not to like game the system and get in, but to provide them musical experiences and help them see themselves as musical beings, um, which I, I really, really loved. And it was a, it's a program near and dear to my heart um and it's still it's still going on now years later so i think it's still thriving which is great you know a, a lot of people um uh who are not or who have never taught in the new york city public schools which is the largest school system in the united states it's 1.1 or 1.2 million students a lot of them don't realize that it can it, it's a weird system in that um it's a beautiful system but it's weird in that it just because let's say you live um, in, on the Upper West Side on you know, 79th and Columbus, and you have a school that's two blocks away, there is absolutely nothing 
that guarantees you that you're going to go to that school. It's this kind of um, lottery system or, you know, you have to basically hope that you get into that school, but it's very common for siblings to go to different schools. Um, it's, it's, it, it basically all comes down to numbers and how many kids and, and equity and all those types, at least this is my understanding, but there's also this kind of disparity between, you know, you can have two, like a PS and, a, and a, a PS and an MS on the same street. And one could have a rock star music teacher, you know, with tons of kids and the other school on the same street has no music program at all. Is that, am I right? Or is that, is that really how it is? Yeah. You're hundred percent correct. Um, you know, I have had so many students whose siblings go to schools in different boroughs. Um, and students, many of the students in my high school, actually, it was a large comprehensive high school where I worked in Queens and, um, in the state of New York, you don't have to have music or art, um, in your K to eight experience. So for some of these students, their first musical experience, um, in school musical experience, I should say like formal right, right. music education didn't happen until like 10th or 11th grade. Whereas, you know, I, there were other students who had been singing since kindergarten. It's just crazy, you know, and then they come into Miss Bernard's classroom and you're like, wait a minute, what, how did you never have music? And how did you have so much music? And you can sight read anything that I put in front of you, right. you know, or whatever the case may be. So there are many disparities. And I know that um, there are lots of policies that are trying to improve these things, um, right. which is, of course, important. But 1.1 million children is a lot of kids to serve, Absolutely. Um, you know, in the arts and beyond. So with, without going down this rabbit hole, because I could talk to you for hours about this, um, now you're at UConn. So explain, like you got your doctorate and? Uh, I got my doctorate and I got a job at the University of Connecticut as a professor of music education. So now I um, am entrusted with the wonderful responsibility of preparing the future music teachers of the world. Um, and uh, my courses that I teach, I teach choral methods and elementary methods. I, I teach an intro to music ed class and um, some seminar classes that go along with that. And then I teach a graduate course in curriculum which uh, I really love because I love to nerd out about curriculum, as you know. Jim. Absolutely, it's lovely. Now you you are you are there at UConn with another one of my dear friends, Joe Abramo. Uh, how long have you how long have you two uh, folks been up there? Um, this is my sixth year at UConn. All right, I believe. yeah. So what? But before yeah, before we dive into it, like. What do you what do you like better? You know, teaching in, in teaching at the public school level or teaching at the university level? Or are they just different? Oh gosh, you know, it's so funny that you asked that question, Jim. Because I, I feel like so often I wake up in the morning and I sometimes question: Should I go back and and teach high school? Should I go back and teach middle school? Um, you know, where am I getting the most impact? Like right. having the most impact in my communities. Um, because I love the classroom. I love the K-12 setting so, so much. Um, but teaching college is different. And 
Um, I, I think because it's so important to me to constantly have roots in the classroom, I'm creating that space at UConn. So having like lots of lab settings where I and the students are going into schools or schools are coming to us. So I'm constantly with kids making music. Um, awesome. And um, I just I just love that. And I think it's really important because we we need to be as relevant as possible in higher ed and we need to realize that kids are changing all the time the way that we consume information and process information is different right particularly with technology and all of these things and so um i i love constantly being in their presence and learning with them and from them now speaking of of your students at the university level my my daughter isabel you were very kind enough to hook me up with two of your amazing students and they gave her a tour of uconn she's trying to figure out what university She's applying to everything. And um, but when I went up there, I was the first person that they'd seen in person and we were wearing masks. You know, I know that it's been extremely difficult for music teachers at the K-12 setting over the last 20 months of this pandemic. But I'd love for you to kind of give us an idea of what it was like, A, teaching at the university level, not in person, but especially these pre-service music educators. This is such a weird, I mean, if if they're not prepared for everything at this point, and in some ways, these are the luckiest pre-service music educators ever. I know they probably don't think that, but now they, it doesn't matter what anybody throws at them, they're going to be ready for it. What has it been like? And, 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 and what do you think about, uh, you know, how they're prepared? I'm sure some of your students didn't even get to do in-person student teaching. I, I can't imagine. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's been wild. I mean, it's been wild for all of us, right? No matter where we're teaching, if we're teaching kindergarten or teaching, That's right. you know, seven, 17th grade, it's just been a wild ride for the last um, 20 months. But our students were doing their student teaching, many of them online. Wow. Um, you know, <laughs> just alongside the teachers in Google Classrooms and, um, you know, and the like. And um, I think one of the most interesting things, and maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit, Jim, so you can backtrack me. Oh, go you for want, it. Um, is that because our students are digital natives, they, they're pretty good with the technology for the most part. So the students who were juniors or student teaching or our grad students were often called upon to, in the early parts of the pandemic, to lead the charge around technology with their cooperating teachers. Um, you know, mm. helping to navigate particular programs and apps through Google Classroom or um, setting up musical experiences through Soundtrap for the students to be creating in their homes and sharing their musical ideas and stuff like that. And it was really interesting, especially in the early part of the pandemic, to, to see our students kind of take on that leadership role where they, you know, I think they have always seen themselves as, well, I'm here to learn how to be a teacher from you. Um, and now they were kind of put in a position where they were the leaders um, and their wow. teachers were learning from them. And um, it, it was really beautiful to watch. And I think there was a shift. I think that probably the last year in particular, our students that have been in the schools, there's been a lot of co-teaching happening with their cooperating teachers, um, which I really like. Um, I love the idea of co-teaching any, anyway. Agreed. You know? So I think... I think that's great. And um, sorry, my phone is ringing. No problem at all. Real life right here. <laughs> <laughs> Real life. And yes, I do have a landline. And, um, <laughs> that's <laughs> but, awesome. You know, during the pandemic, yeah, we were, uh, we were in the Zoom university. 
we had our classes on Zoom, Methods courses on Zoom, which was so interesting because, you know, when you're teaching people how to teach a song by rote, you want everybody to be singing together. Um, you know, when I, if I'm doing a call and response and I'm doing a song like Jumbo or something and I sing Jumbo, I want to hear 15, 20 voices respond with Jumbo, but they're just singing in their little windows. And yep. of course, you know, we were doing that in a K-12 setting too. Um, but I found myself as a teacher and as a teacher educator, constantly having to give more, um, more cues than I would in an in-person setting, like from a pedagogical perspective. Right, right. Uh, which was pretty interesting, you know, kind of saying like, you know, really drawing attention to, did you notice my body language shifted there? Which I would do in an in-person setting, but I'd have to do it almost more so because some nuances are, you know, they're missing on the on the internet in, a, in the Zoom. Indeed. So it, wild question, but I'm, I'm, I think as a, as an teacher educator, you probably know that in, I, I was speaking to a group of music ed students, um, last, uh, in this, this past spring. And one of the, one of the students, you know, about to graduate with a music ed degree said, what do you think about our job prospects? I'm really nervous that music programs are, you know, going to get cut and, and I'm, and there may not be a job. And I said, I guarantee you that you're going to get hired because so many music teachers who may have been in the twilight of their career had just an absolutely nightmarish last, you know, the end of 2020 and then the 2020, 21 school year being decimated basically I said a lot of music teachers who, you know, have like 30, 35 years in are just going to say, I think I've had enough. I don't know what it's like in Connecticut, but I know that I see a ton of job openings. And I wonder if you have the same experience. Yeah, you know what, Jim, uh, you just hit the nail on the head. I think that there have been uh, plenty of jobs. I know over the summer, I got so many phone calls and so many emails from districts in Connecticut, in New York, in um, Rhode Island, in Massachusetts, just saying, do you have students for this job? Yep. Um, you know, we need, we need a fill in the blank at the, you know, middle school orchestra teacher, we need a high school chorus teacher and a lot of high school ensemble jobs, which typically are not always the, the jobs that are free, um, right. but many, many. And so I think that, I think that probably for the next couple few years there's going to be plenty of jobs to be had um so i think that your advice to that student was was spot on yeah and and you know the the other thing is and and this is to me more of an opportunity than a challenge i think every music program and choral music programs probably just as much as band and choir and and orchestra every single music program in the united states took a hit in terms of enrollment this fall. So, you know, like how many, you may have had a middle school choir with 90 students on March 12th, 2020. And then you come back in the fall of 2021 and you might have 40, you know, so we're hearing, or at least in the people I'm talking to that there's, you know, it's a significant 30% less kids in the program. And while some may see that as demoralizing, especially if you're going to go into a situation where a veteran teacher who just said, I've had enough, 
I'm walking out and you're going in with a kind of diminished forces, if you will, in terms of the numbers in your program. I see that as a massive opportunity to say, all right, I'm going to go in and make my own program now. These, you know, th this kind of massive disruption that happened is a great opportunity for young music educators uh, to say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start building something for my own. I wonder, you know, is that does that sound about right? I mean, the kids that graduated, these these awesome kids that took us on the tour, they must be in the in the workforce. Or what's what are you what are you hearing in terms of numbers? Yeah, I think that I think that you know the numbers have certainly diminished, but I think you know I think there's so much opportunity, as you said, to kind of reconceptualize what what can music education look like? What is music education? What can music education look like? What is the purpose of music education in schools? Mm -hmm. And then how do we answer those questions in the ways that we create our curriculum and, and, and in, through our pedagogy? And, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of our students entering the workforce saw, I don't know, I think they found comfort in having that freedom. Sometimes it could be very hard um, big shoes to fill if someone is retiring in a high yep. school program, you know, and there are all these traditions and this and that, and they feel like, okay, what do I, how do I make things my own? And, you know, we always talk about like, you're never going to confront the iceberg head on, right? You're right, going to chip right. away and start to make changes. And you do that because you need to become part of the fabric of the community and this and that. And <laughs> particularly the last 20 months, we have seen such a change in the way that we are thinking about, um, curriculum and instruction. Well, I yeah. hope we have maybe in more open and, and um, creative ways that our students kind of took it and run, ran. And I think their communities have really enjoyed it. You know, what does it look like to enter um, a middle school or high school choral job as a young teacher and say, you know what, I know that you have done these kinds of um, performances every year. And you know, you're always singing X and Y, but let's focus on some units and singing in some rounds right. and let's position ourselves as arrangers not just performers of choral right. music but arrangers and what would it look like if we took this unison folk song and um and remixed it and and started to make loops on it and this and that now all of a sudden the ensemble space becomes like just so much possibility and i think our students really thrived in that i think their communities really enjoyed it it was uh they used different ways of social media to share a lot of the processes that the kids were taking to learn their music yep. um so i i agree i think that in many ways the the future is very bright in the ways that we can reconceive of curriculum and it, that part I really like the the money part which I know that sometimes you know finances can get in the way of certain things or whatever but I um you know I think the more that we teachers can be agents in our in our spaces um for better in the way yep. that we create and enact our curriculum I think that that can tra transcend any amount of of you know, budget that one might not be allotted in their program for a couple of years or whatever. Now, Kara, I have always wanted to ask you this, and I'll put you on the spot, but um, in my world of Music First, and, and specifically when, when customers call Music First and say, I've heard about this thing and I would really like to, um, you know, bring it into my program. At the moment, I would say that you know, six out of 10, maybe more are, are band oriented. 
And I've always wondered in the choral world, um, there's a perception among folks like myself within in the technology space that the choral folks don't like us as much as the band folks do. So I would love to know from your perspective and please feel free to don't hold back. Um, what do you think the role of music technology is in a choral program and, and, and do you think it has a place or is it something that's just really, um, you know, kind of foreign to that, the, to the beautiful music that you guys make? that it is, it's so interesting that you say that, Jim, you know, um, choral folk, they're such interesting people. Um, I love them. I love um, them. <laughs> I, I love them too. And I do identify as one. Um, yes. So I think that I'm going to try to answer this question from a, a certain, a different angle than maybe we are anticipating. But All right. I think the role of music technology in any choral program needs to be like purposeful. Um, I think sometimes when we think about technology, it's something divorced or ancillary to the music making process. Mm. Um, you know, so for example, like here's my music making time and now here's the time where I'm going to use the technology, right? Yep. Um, and, and I think because of that, maybe there's not, a, it's not synergistic, right? But um, what would it look like to use technology in a choral classroom to hear and offer feedback on students' work? Um, of course, we know that that can be incredibly valuable, right? Um, I think that music technology can be used as a medium to change the creative process of, of how we learn in a choral setting, right? To create like a hybridized multimedia experience for the singers and for the audience in perform in performances, you know, yep. and that can connect to the larger world and to our everyday lives, you know, what would it look like to incorporate technology in ways to um, showcase or highlight the different aspects of learning, and also the different aspects of chorus as more than just performing. Um, so mm. I think that's maybe a little bit more of a philosophical question. No, it is definitely, a, it's absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, um, it, it's one of those things where, uh, I, we, we've, we have felt from, um, you know, a, a very real number perspective, like I can see the numbers is that a lot of choral folks during the pandemic went all in, you know, they said, I'm using this stuff mainly to keep their programs going alive, facilitating instruction. Mm -hmm. And then when live in person came back, which is pretty much a universal at this point, um, you know, it depends on where you live, obviously, but a lot of them said, I am so desperate. And by the way, I am firmly in this camp. I'm just so desperate to be with people again. I'm, I'm so desperate to have students sitting in chairs on risers singing even if it's through a mask that a lot of especially the choral teachers just when i ever want to see this stuff again i just I, it's really interesting to hear your perspective and maybe you know there obviously there's going to be a, a portion of those those choral educators who said you know what this stuff went, during the pandemic was actually really cool um i'd love to know like what what did you what kind of tech did you use during the pandemic yeah totally um Good question. I can I, I want to answer the second oh, yeah. part like a question before I answer that. Is that okay? Sure, please. Um, you know, just kind of going back to this idea of like 
course as a space for more than just performing, right? And you're saying during the pandemic, a lot of teachers were using a lot of tools and this and that and saying, oh, okay, this is great. I really like this. Um, but I think when we use technology, whether it's a digital technology, whether we think of technology as um, instruments, found instruments, you mm. know, soundscapes, whatever, we can open up, you know, to students seeing themselves as artistic beings in different roles in addition to and beyond being a performer. Yep. They can see themselves as arrangers. They can see themselves as composers, as producers, as critics. Um, and of course, this, this can only help to like beef up the actual performing that happens, you know, but in this sense, the students are seeing themselves in hybridized musical roles, like where they're thinking about, um, and doing performing, but they're recording, they're producing, they're manipulating, they're sharing, evaluating, distributing. These are all, this is all part of the work that artists do, Yep. you know, and, and artists engage in different texts, right? Like different musical texts, not just a musical score, um, you know, so an, an app, it can be uh, a musical text. The way that we listen to something and respond to it, um, you know, either as a critic is, can be a musical text, um, writing a letter to a composer or, you know, doing a podcast or something. These are musical texts. These is, this is all part of the work that artists do. And I think when we start to kind of think about that, that can open up the classroom, um, the choral classroom to be a, a both and space for performing, but other musical roles. And so, you know, thinking about how can technology help to aid in that? Um, going to the question that you just asked, for right. me, like at least these last 20 months, obviously we were on Zoom University. So we did use the Zoom to meet. Um, that was our platform. And you know what I actually really loved about Zoom, Jim, um, for all its faults and not being <laughs> together was the chat function. Oh yes, uh, the back channel conversations while you're while you're yeah, I agree completely. Um, I, I just I loved just kind of seeing like the live chat in the middle of class. You know, if we were watching a video or listening to something, they would use the chat and they would just be going, 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 and just really beautiful like discourse happening. Um, so that was one part of the Zoom platform I really, really enjoyed. Thanks for that, Zoom. Yeah. Um, we did a lot of songwriting things uh, during the, the year. Um, so we used Soundtrap for that. Um, and we also used Google Docs to organize our ideas before putting it in Soundtrap because That's it was cool. shared content so everybody could see things. Um, and then when I taught elementary methods, we actually used some of the Music First Junior programs um, you know, to really think about how do we use, how is technology a tool and not, not how does this program become the curriculum? Correct. We had a lot of conversations about that. And so, um, we used some of the programs from music first to highlight that. Um, so that was, that was great. Those are the, those are the three big ones that come to mind, but we used a lot of Soundtrap. Yeah. I mean, Soundtrap, especially, um, for the, the performance aspect of things, uh, meaning the collaboration possibilities. Um, so many people, um, specifically the folks that I've interviewed for this podcast over the last 20 months, it just seemed like 
they were using that a lot just to facilitate kids recording together when they couldn't be there in person. I'm just wondering what technologies do you think will this that your students used? Do you think will will um, carry forward into a you know hopefully a non-COVID impacted music or you know choral program like going into the future? Do you think they'll? I mean, I love everything that you said about you know basically holistic music teaching and not just the performance, but also the composition, the, the connection, the responding, all of that great, great stuff. I couldn't agree more. I'm just wondering what technologies you think will stick around. Yeah, I think, I think um, one thing that I, I did see a lot of teachers using during the pandemic, aside from Soundtrap, um, and the, my student, our student teachers were using them too in their settings. They used a lot of like note flight and a lot of practice apps um, mm -hmm. and they used sight reading factory. Yeah, Sight Reading Factory is definitely a very popular title among choral educators, that is for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've thought a lot about like those, those are the three that I hear a lot, right? Note flight, lots of these practice apps yeah. and, um, and Sight Reading Factory. And I think they're, I think they're wonderful. But I also want to just reiterate what I said in the beginning of like, the role of music technology in a choral program needs to be something purposeful and not ancillary. So it's like, here's my time for sight reading factory. Now it's time to move over to the repertoire. I would love to see some sorts of overlap of like, you know, if we're doing something in one of these apps, how can that transcend into the repertoire that we're doing, right? Um, especially because, you know, these, like these practice apps and stuff, of course, like they're super helpful. And it is part of the work that, um, that artists and musicians do, but I would love um, in conjunction with those apps, I'd love to see more creative things in the ensemble classrooms, more of the sound traps, um, you know, more of the collaborative things happening to really highlight the learning process. And I think it, I think it will happen. I think that teachers, I think we as music teachers just sort of need to take a little bit of time to think about it because for the last 20 months, right, Jim, we've been thinking about like, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to, you know, I've, got to make sure the kids are engaged. I've got to show everybody we're still doing things. And, um, and now maybe we can take a step back and say, all right, you know, that soundtrack thing was great because the kids were doing it on zoom. They were creating, they were, they were like collaborating and stuff. What does that look like when I come back in person in my choral classroom? Yeah. And let me hit and, you up with this idea out of left field. But yeah. when I was, so I, I did teach um, elementary school, middle school choir for three years, but I, most of my career, I was teaching band. And I say this, and it's almost heretical coming out from somebody who's a technology, you know, proponent uh, is I almost never, ever, ever use it during a rehearsal. And the reason was, is that my rehearsal time was so precious and so little that and I had a concert always looming on the headline and on the horizon, but that's neither here nor there, whether or not that's a good thing, but I never or very, very rarely used it during an actual rehearsal. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest place for technology in a choir program, band, orchestra, mariachi, whatever you're doing, is when the kids aren't with you. Because one of the things that's like the unspoken truth about large ensembles and choir directors have some of the largest of all, is you can't really do individualized instruction when you've got 85 middle schoolers sitting in front of you for 42 minutes. Totally. So I like, I would always use the technologies when you're not with me, 
here's what I'd like you to do. Go and look at this. Go and watch this performance. Go and, and practice your sight reading. Go and learn how to read notes on a staff kind of thing, it, right? Am I, am, I out of, am I out of touch? No, I don't think you're out of touch at all, right? And because the reality too is that time is precious. And sometimes music teachers only see their students once a week for 35 minutes, right? right. So, um, you know, it can be very useful to not have the technology and just let's connect, let's be together, let's do this, let's music and um, and all this stuff. And I think I think the out of school stuff, the practicing, the absence stuff is super valuable. And I, I would, I guess, you know, to go off of that, I would just love to see music teachers loop back to it in some way in the classroom. Yep. You know, even if it's just constant mentioning of like, how did you do in the thing? You know, um, yep. like when you were doing the sight reading factory, what are some things? And of course, I'm sure a lot of teachers do that, but um, you know, the, like, I think the more we can make conscious efforts to connect that, then the more it doesn't seem like a chore for the yep. students of like, yep. oh yeah, I just have to do this thing now. You know, and and that's a very very small thing, but I'm I'm with you a hundred percent. And as someone again, I you know, teaching in teaching in New York City, I didn't have a budget. Um, you know, any kind most of the materials that happened in my classroom came from like I always called it the Bank of Bernard because yep. it came from <laughs> my own my own account, right? Like right. my own funds. Um, to do anything. So we didn't have a lot of technology. And um, sometimes I would lament that, but I also really loved just being with the students, like sitting in a circle and like not having any technology. Um, so I think, I think it can be very valuable to not uh, okay. have that in the classroom too. Excellent. I'm glad we're on the same page because I, I have a ton of respect for you. And I've always wanted to ask a choral person that question. So um, we're, we're kind of running out on time, but I have two questions for you. The first one, and, and I think as a teacher educator, you're probably really well positioned to answer this. What advice would you give to teachers who are thinking of incorporating music tech into their choral programs or their programs? Because I know you teach everything at UConn uh, in terms of, you know, specialties. What, what advice would you give, you know, teachers or pre-service teachers, you know, um, and how to incorporate this stuff into their teaching. Yeah, again, you know, this comes back down to like purpose. It's like, why are, why do you want to use technology, right? Don't right. just use technology because you think you need to use it. Like have some sort of a purpose so that it is not divorced from what you're doing in the classroom, right? True. And, and use it as a tool within your own developed curriculum, right? And I know that that's something that you say, Jim, all the time. All I've the seen time. You, I've seen you. <laughs> Uh, you know, do workshops with in-service teachers, working with pre-service teachers, and you're always saying, you know, these programs are tools. They are not. They're not supposed to do the teaching, and um, and so I think that goes back to purpose, right? And I think that incorporating technology can um, certainly support efficiency in some ways. You know, in even in things like attendance, like where in those set in that sense, efficiency could be a really good thing. Um, and I think, too, for teachers that are beginning to incorporate more technology into their classroom, along with purpose, I think they should think about um, their students and access to material resources. Um, you know, you, you were just mentioning a minute ago about a lot of the practicing that happens at home and this and that. Um, some students don't have a place where they can practice. That's right. Um, or they're practicing in their shower or they're practicing in their closet, you know, again, coming from New York City, um, 
practicing was very difficult for my students because they lived in apartment buildings and some of the some of their family members that they lived with uh, worked nights or yep. they were in a multi-generational home and there were lots of people in every room or you know there were babies and stuff like that so I think thinking of of the student settings and situations but also their access to material resources to be able to practice um is just as important you know I totally and agree not everybody might have a not everybody might have that google chromebook to go and do the thing or might not everybody might have the um the iphone or some sort of a you know smartphone yep. that can do the thing so how do we how do we account for that in ways where we're not um we're not just teaching to the the students that have certain things yeah, they're bridging um, the digital so that, divide, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess that would be my advice, which I'm not sure is is overly helpful, but I think there's things that we really need. To, I think we really need to think about that. I think like system resources is something that we don't talk about all the time, yep. um, you know, and, and how much that that can influence the ways that we um, that we plan instruct. Um, and, but I think it, again, it just all comes down to purpose. What do you do? Don't just do it because it's shiny and because kids like technology, um, use it with purpose, use the apps with purpose. They're, you know, so many, so many apps and programs are wondering, they have made my life much easier as a musician and teacher, but to do them with purpose don't just do them because you think you have to or because you have to do this to hit a standard do it because it fits in with what you're doing and it's going to enhance the learning and the musical experience yeah i mean a perfect example of that is let's say you're about to um you know start working on a choral work that's in d major it's in five four satb and you just want the kids to get a little bit of a feel for that. Obviously, as a choral educator, it's kind of natural, second nature to go, all right, well, I, we're going to warm up in D major. We're going to, I'm going to make sure that the last key that we warm up in is D major. But to then say like, well, let's practice sight reading something in this key, right? Um, that's really hard to then go find another piece with those exact parameters. And that's why I love Sight Reading Factory. And even if that's yeah. all you use it for, you throw it up on the whiteboard, you put in the parameters, D major, SATV, and 5-4, go. The kids sing yeah. through it. It's 30 seconds long, and then you're into your piece. You know, that's exactly, that's a purpose, right? You're just trying to get these kids warmed up and ready to read 5-4, D major. Exactly. And then, you know, the instructions not coming to a halt, you Correct. know, there's a, there is an arc to the lesson and it's purposeful. And I think that is a really tasteful and thoughtful example of, of that. Um, I love that. There well, are thank many, you, many Cara. times. Where, <laughs> yes. Uh, I think there are many times that I wish that I had a, a sight reading factory when I was teaching. Um, I sound like I'm doing an endorsement, but this is true teachers, you know, because in between classes and you're up there and you're doing the quick little like sight reading things that, you know, like you're writing it out yep. yourself. Like it would be just really nice to click a couple of buttons and, and have that and then be able to stand in the door and welcome the kids instead of being up there writing your Todd TT rests, you yep. know, like in the <laughs> for your sight reading example. All right, so my final question, my dear Kara, is the magic wand one. Um, and yeah. and what, I, what I would expect from most choral educators is we want more content and practice first. So that's not allowed because I know that and we're working on that. <laughs> but if you could like ma wave a magic wand and either have music first do something or music tech in general that it can't do now, what would it be? 
Oh my gosh. You know what? But this is such a good question, Jim Frankel. Um, I appreciate are, that. There are a couple of things, but this this might be a little obscure. But you know what I'd love? I would just love to have some sort of a program where, um, like, professional musicians, like people who make their living as a musician, could contribute like short videos talking about their process of what is it like to be an artist. Like, what is it like to be a performer? What's it like to be an arranger? What's it like to be a composer? What's it like to be a critic for the New York Times or to be a producer or, you know, short things like that and just getting a little glimpse into their world and then like being able to make a connection between that short video and whatever like another like creation program is, you know? Um, even like, even thinking about like sight reading, having, having a professional talk about like, you know, how they sight how read, they sight read? Right. what's their, what is their process, right? Because we know that um, like, it's important to have mirrors, right? So, yep. so that we can see ourselves in the process. And I would love to have some sort of a program like that where- It's an awesome idea. And I'm now, my brain is- swirling with like people I could get to do that that's fantastic yeah or like even they give like little excerpts like musical excerpts and they could become they could be like the basis for students using it to create loops or to arrange take that small little musical excerpt and like arrange it or sing it and put it in a canon and you know all these kinds of things I think that would be so fun I, I as a student I'd love that as a teacher I'd love that all right. Well, if there are any if there are any tech startups out there listening to Kara right now, don't. That's our idea. Don't take it. Um, copyright, trademark. Copyright, copyright. I love it, Kara. That's a very cool idea. We'll have to chat because I, I think that's something we could do. So, Kara, I I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to chat with me today. I'm absolutely sure that no matter what music teachers teach, they they got something out of listening to you. Please, uh, if you if you do have you know, high school, uh, you know, musicians who are looking for music ed programs, definitely consider going to UConn. I've been there numerous times. I absolutely love it. It's a fantastic campus. Kara, thank you so much. I can't wait to see you in person. Oh, the feeling is mutual. Thank you for having me. Can't wait to see you soon. All right. Take care, my dear. Thank you for listening to Profiles in Teaching with Technology from Music First. For more information about Music First, please visit www.musicfirst.com. If you would like to stay up to date with other music teachers doing innovative things in their classrooms with technology, please subscribe to our podcast through whatever outlet you listen to podcasts on. Thanks for listening.